This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. It feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening to the city of London. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. It's just past 5 p.m. where you guys are. Uh, it is, you're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. Guy Johnson uh, is still on vacation today. So there's lots of headlines that are happening. One thing that's I'm pointing out here is the divergence between what's happening over in Europe and here in the U.S. We have a rally underway in the U.S. equity market. In Europe, uh, stocks ended lower. The CAC was off by three-tenths of one percent. The FTSE MIB uh, was also off by about 1.6 percent. A couple stories floating around. One, we're all looking at what's happening with Mario Draghi. Confidence vote should be kicking off at around 6 p.m. your time. We're also looking ahead, of course, to the ECB. Um, Putin is still holding the gas flows in Nord Stream 1 over Europe's head. Uh, IMF warns on growth if that gas does not restart. And you also have a Sunak versus Trust uh, face-off uh, for the next UK party chairman for the Tory party. So that should be fun, and we'll discuss that uh, later on in this show as well. We got a lot lined up for you. Kriti Gupta luckily is here with me in studio, uh, a wonderful replacement uh, for Guy. Kriti, what stands out to you today? I mean, I think you hit it. That divergence is so key. What's interesting here is that there are actually geopolitical ripple effects from what's going on in Europe. But if you look at the equity market today in the United States, they're looking at what's happening in Italy and the ECB as really an isolated issue. It's almost a little bit of, um, I want to say, deja vu from a couple months ago when it was Europe is going to hit recession, but that is a Europe story, not a global one. Dot, dot, dot. We'll right. see. Um, okay, let's get those are kind of market headlines for you. Get, let's get some other headlines with Charlie Pellet. I thank you very much, Alex Steele. Liz Truss, as you mentioned, ousted Penny Mordaunt in the race to be the conservative leader and the UK's next prime minister, pitching the foreign secretary into a final runoff against former Chancellor of the Exchequer Rishi Sunak. In a ballot of Tory MPs, Truss won 113 votes to Mordaunt's 105 as the trade minister's early momentum stalled. Sunak, whose resignation helped trigger Johnson's demise and who has led in every round, got 137 votes. UK home rental prices rose at the sharpest pace since 2016 in June, adding to a cost-of-living squeeze. The Office for National Statistics says rents rose 3% from a year ago last month, stronger than the 2.8% growth in May. And the UK's ambitious plan to expand its nuclear industry took a step forward with approval for Electricité de France to build the Sizewell C project. The 3.2 gigawatt plant will power 6 million homes for the next 60 years if it goes ahead. A financing deal is crucial, and EDF wants to reach an agreement with the government in the near term. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right. Thank you so much, Charlie Pellet. So tell me if you've heard this one before. There's some political chaos happening in Italy and spreads are blowing out. I'm just saying that's happening yet again. There's a confidence vote for Mario Draghi that's set to take place uh, at 6 p.m. Mario Draghi toned the line. He said, you support me and all my reforms or I walk. Let's get the latest here with European government team leader Chiara Albanese uh, joining us. Uh, Chiara, where are we? Does Mario Draghi going to walk? Does he stay? Um, look, as to if everyone continues to follow through on what has been said in the last hours. 
uh, Maria Draghi is going to walk. Um, the voting process is just going on the way uh, at the moment with party leaders just setting out what they intend to do in the, in the vote itself. Um, and we don't have yet the intention declared by the parties that we are watching more closely. And that means the centre-right, the League, Forza Italia and the Five Star Movement. But for sure, during a long day in the Senate, there, um, a, a common ground on how Mario Draghi can continue to remain Italy's prime minister has not been found. So, oh, looks like we might have lost connection there with Kiara. Let's see if we can get her back. Um, so. The idea is, in the meantime, the rhetoric seems to be uh, that he's going to have to walk. Now, either way, you're getting parliamentary elections uh, in the back half of 2023 anyway. Uh, but this does throw into question a lot of what the ECB uh, can do and how it manages its anti-fragmentation tool. Um, Kriti, wh- what do you make of, of all of this in that if you have spreads blowout, this is what I don't get, yeah. have spreads blowout, how do you know what part of that is due to the ECB hiking and then what part of that is due to political dysfunction? Well, I think the answer is you don't, except that in even in today's intraday session, you did see the, that spread move when mm-hmm. Draghi was speaking. And I think that's really significant here because the 50 basis points, well, it's still up in the air. Yes, there are calls for it, but we don't know if that's right, uh, really baked into the market yet. It's not the base case yet, uh, the way that perhaps 75 basis points is perhaps the base case in the United States. And that is very very clearly priced into the market. Um, but I would argue that perhaps it doesn't even matter which part is Draghi and which part is ECB, because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, the ECB still has yet to say, here is our upper bound when it comes to yield. And mm-hmm. this is perhaps something that I'm going to hate to use this word, but transitory. This mm-hmm. might be a, a short term geopolitical situation that they don't think is indicative of something that will stay in the long term. Yeah, really. I feel like that commentary is so key uh, tomorrow. Uh, we'll get more on how to trade the ECB uh, as we go on through the show as well. Kara's back with us. Uh, Kara Albany is uh, joining us again. OK, so so where were we when we lost you? We were talking about the vote uh, and, and sort of the political positioning. Yes, absolutely. So we're going to have some more visibility just uh, in a few minutes or hours. But uh, as things are going at the moment, it will be very hard for Mario Draghi to pull it through in terms of continuing to having support from his government coalition. And he has said very clearly that unless all parties back him, well, he's just going to resign. So uh, we might have big news coming out of Italy and this um, is going to throw some turmoil into markets into into tomorrow and into the the coming months uh, even um, given how critical the, the the level of Italian debt is. Well, Kira, walk us through what happens if Mario Draghi does actually leave. Who is in charge then, and what kind of policy implications can we expect? So he will remain in charge as a caretaker prime minister for some months. But in that case, his powers will be limited because he will be an outgoing prime minister. Um, So uh, Italy is expected at that point to hold new elections um, early uh, in the fall. That could be early October. The, a date is not set uh, yet, clearly, uh, but until then, he would uh, just run the current affairs of the administration. Um, and then probably an electoral campaign mm-hmm. would start uh, with parties setting out their own agendas. Can I walk it back for a second? What's the problem? Like, what does the Five Star Movement want? Like, why didn't they give support for reforms from Draghi? Why won't they do that now? 
So that's a great question. Um, what the problem um, is mainly a loss of identity in uh, the Five Star Movement that after rising to power, rising to power in 2018, um, they kind of like lost a bit what they, they wanted to achieve and they saw a complete collapse in the polls. That meant that uh, at the moment they tried to gain back some support by playing it very hard in terms of what, how Italy should position itself um, with, in relation to Russia's uh, war in Ukraine. So they opposed first some uh, supporting Ukraine militarily and then they also criticized Draghi's uh, aid bill that was supposed to help families um, to cushion uh, the, the impact of rising energy prices. Um, on such a bill, they abstained from voting confidence. They uh, actually walked out from the room. Mm-hmm. And so that meant that uh, Draghi saw that as a reason to resign. Well, countdown continues. We're like 52 minutes away to see what that confidence vote will be. Uh, Kiara, thank you very much. We appreciate it, Kiara. Albanase joining us from Bloomberg. All right, coming up, we're going to talk about more political dysfunction, dare I say, the UK election, Sunak versus Trust. We will get the latest. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, you're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. So we finally have two, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. Finally, we get the two that are going to compete uh, to hold and to become the head of the Tory party and then prime minister until we get elections in a couple of years. So let's get the latest. We will get the latest in just a second. Um, Kriti, this is like UK politics at its finest. Um, it's... I can't imagine a system where the public doesn't actually elect an official, but yeah. they still get to hang out for a couple of years and make a lot of policy decisions, one in which may be cutting taxes. Yeah. That's at least what Liz Truss wants, which also seems very questionable when you have uh, inflation at the highest in about 40 years. Yeah, uh, the concept of a caretaker prime minister, we were just talking to Chiara Albanese about that in Italy, well, it very much applies in the UK as well with Boris Johnson. But I think the cutting taxes part is so critical here because the Conservative Party hasn't done that for three years, and that is quite literally their party line. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some ways, she almost has the advantage in, in when it comes to conservative politics. Well, let's get the latest. Joe Mays uh, joins us here. Um, OK, Trust versus Sunak. Your take, Joe. Yeah, so I think we were expecting Liz Trust to make it to the final two. She was sweeping up that support from Kemi Badenoch, who'd been in fourth place, which had been the kind of stronger pro-Brexit wing of the party. Finally, lying behind Trust, she's seen as more reliable on that issue than Sunak, despite the fact that she campaigned for Remain back in the 2016 referendum. But politics is all turned upside down right now. So there you are. And um, yeah, it's really a battle between a kind of quite close to Johnson continuity candidate. I mean, that's what the, the opposition Labour Party are arguing in Liz Truss, that her platform seems quite similar to Johnson. She's got that kind of boosterish optimism versus the kind of more cautious, fiscally responsible Rishi Sunak. So that'll be a really interesting dynamic to see play out in the campaign. So, Joe, what does that mean? I mean, Liz Truss is also known as as particularly tough when it comes to things like Brexit, for example. What bearing does that have on the relationship with the EU? Yeah, I think that this, um, if Truss were to become prime minister, we'd like to see a continuing deterioration in the relationship with the EU because it's Liz Truss who's brought forward this 
bill in Parliament which would override the Brexit agreement in breach of international law in the eyes of many, and indeed the EU itself. And if she's become Prime Minister, you'd think, well, she'd have to continue with that plan. It's, it's, a, it's a key part of what she's been doing. It's part of her platform. Under Sunak, you'd think he might have some wriggle room to kind of perhaps soften that and take a different course. So I would say that the prospect of kind of a con- conflagration of the EU relationship has now gone up w- w- with trust uh, kind of heading for another 10 at this point. Um, at the same time, we have this move to overrule regulators. Uh, this is a bill, the Financial Services and Markets Bill, uh, published today. The call-in power, raising a lot of questions as to A, what that is, B, how it would be used by the government, and C, how it specific ooh, hard word, specifically be used uh, for the BOE after Liz Truss was saying that maybe the BOE should follow the BOJ. Maybe the BOE needs to expand its mandate. Can we walk me through what we know about this? Yes, so last night the Chancellor and Nadeem Zahawi said that this is something the Treasury is looking at and they're not making any big decisions now. They're going to wait for new Prime Ministers to come in. Effectively, be giving Ministers the power to overturn and review decisions that regulators are making. And the government argues this is all about kind of making the regulators accountable and like being in line with public interest. Obviously, the Bank of England say, well, you know, we have a responsibility to stability and, and sound regulations. They're quite upset about this prospect. But I think you're right to say that with Liz Truss and the criticism she's made of the Bank of England, you can expect this power you know, might actually come, come become part of the government's agenda if she became prime minister. And again, I'd say Sunak, you'd think, perhaps more cautious on this issue. You know, he has a background in finance and he, 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 he is a pro-Brexit uh, candidates, and he wants to make the UK competitive vis-a-vis the EU, and they think that maybe they need to be a bit more flexible in regulation, but I think trust would definitely be more gung-ho on, on that project. Joe, 30 seconds here. I'm curious about the almost uh, the reaction, or I should say the policy towards Ukraine. Boris Johnson's made a big deal about the United Kingdom really giving their support to Ukraine. Does any of that change under any of these candidates? I don't think so. I think both candidates know that it's a very popular thing to do at this point in this country. It's the right thing to do in their eyes, morally, and uh, it's, it's pretty much uncontested. So I, I think that would definitely uh, continue uh, to, at the high level we've seen on the job. Hey, Joe, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. You must be very relieved that we're finally whittled this down to two. Uh, Joe Mays <laughs> joining us uh, from Bloomberg, a U.K. government reporter. Um, all right, coming up, we're going to go to the overriding issue that's confronting all of Europe right now, and that's the massive gas shortage. The IMF very much mourning on growth if the gas doesn't come back online from Russia. We'll break that down with Will Kennedy. He leads our commodity coverage here. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Russia is blackmailing us. Russia is using energy as a weapon. And therefore, in any event, whether it's a partial major cutoff of Russian gas or a total cutoff of Russian gas, Europe needs to be ready. We have to reduce our gas consumption. I know this is a big ask for the whole of the European Union, but it is necessary to, to protect us. Every member state should reduce the use of gas. And our second objective is we provide a safety net for all member states. That was Ursula von der Leyen speaking earlier. Um, the EU proposing 15 percent cutting gas consumption um, and also preparing for a winter without Russian gas. At the same time, uh, Vladimir Putin said the Nord Stream 1 pipeline will restart tomorrow, but only potentially at 20 percent capacity. Um, if a pipeline part is cut up in sanctions and isn't returned to Russia. So that battle, of course, continues. At the same time, the IMF uh, said that Germany could lose a whopping 4.8% of economic output
output if Russia shuts down its supplies altogether. The whole of the eurozone could also lose anywhere between one and two and a half percent of GDP, depending on who you ask. So let's ask one of the smartest people out there when it comes to commodities, and that's Will Kennedy, a Bloomberg managing editor of EMEA Energy and Commodities. Will, there's lots to unpack here. Um, I want to start with Nord Stream 1, though. What's the part that Vladimir Putin is saying he's missing and that he wants in order to restart the gas? Uh, hi, Alex. Um, it is a compressor, which are giant turbines, like a jet engine, but much bigger, that sit in uh, the pipeline and uh, force the gas down it. They're essential to keeping the gas flowing at the rate uh that the pipeline is designed to uh, provide. One of them was sent to Canada uh, to be repaired. It is now on its way back. And there's a second one that needs to be repaired shortly, which will be prepared in in Russia, I believe. Um, So Putin is pointing to these as necessary to keep the pipeline running. Um, They are. Mm -hmm. um, But we're not sure whether this is hit just gamesmanship on his part or whether he uh, is really worried about the the turbines coming back right it's 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 sort of maybe a combination of both who knows so either way the eu has to reduce its consumption on european on russian gas and they want that 15 percent cut what i also found interesting is that the european commission was like but you guys figure out how to do it like each individual country kind of does it on their own does that work and also what can they do um, yes, at the moment, this is a EU commission, so at the top of the EU, and it's merely advisory advising member states uh, what they should do to get through this crisis. Um, it's up for member states to decide specific policies. There are several policies uh, that member states can enact. Uh, they can advise people to heat their homes uh, to a, not as, as warm as they normally would. Uh, they can talk to businesses about how to uh, use less gas and uh, in extreme situations say that they can't uh, operate um, as often as they would like. Um, they can look to replace gas-fired generation by coal, which mm-hmm. a lot of, uh, with coal, which a lot of member states are already doing. They can try to uh, um, install emergency generators. There are things, but as you say, 15% is a big number. And depending how this goes down, depending how much gas does get cut off from Russia or how cold it is, it is very easy to see a situation where forced rationing comes into play. You know, I don't know if you saw it, but the uh, the city note about their short, medium, and long-term outlook uh, for natural gas today, I thought was really interesting. Um, in part, and this was my biggest takeaway, is that high prices, the potential for nuclear, and the use of coal could actually mean that Asian LNG demand is going to be dented a little bit. So Russia won't really have that outlet to sell as much as we think that they do. At the same time, if they can't sell to Europe, their the risk is that their assets could actually be stranded uh, over in Russia. Is anyone talking about that right now? Well, I think this is part of the calculation for Russia. In the short term, Putin definitely sees Europe's dependence on gas as a strategic advantage as he tries to achieve what he wants to achieve with his war in Ukraine, as he tries to uh, assert uh, Russia's weight in the world. Gas gives him a very strong card to play. But longer term, how much of an advantage is that? It is quite clear that in two or three years, Europe and Germany in particular is determined to wean itself completely off Russian gas, which will mean buying more LNG for Europe, mm-hmm. which will mean faster deployment of renewables and a range of measures. That reduces 
the potential markets for Russia in the future. Um, it will try and sell more to China for sure. But longer term, I think it's worth asking whether this is a problem for Russia. Yeah, exactly. Because like China, you can make the argument too, yes, they want to be green, but they also need to be, have energy security, which is a whole different, like that is more of a coal story potentially. Um, also, here's something else that City pointed out. And I love this note because it was really counterintuitive. But it said that, you know, Europe um, sees the reliance on natural gas as temporary. They can assign it as green, but they don't want to rely on it forever. So they're really apt to sign short-term contracts. If I'm an exporter or producer, I need long-term contracts to plop down billions of dollars to build an export terminal. And sometimes those two things are not going to go hand in hand. No, that's right. And uh, it's a very interesting question uh, how much extra LNG that we get in the years ahead. I mean, clearly, Qatar is confident the world's, you know, single biggest gas exporter uh, at times uh, is confident about uh, expanding its position its its sanction the massive expansion of its uh, north field one of the world's biggest um, and it it sees probably what's happening to Russia as an opportunity and finding new customers especially in Europe but you know th- these are massive plants which have a life of 20 30 years mm-hmm. um, and there are still huge uncertainties about the future of of fossil fuels uh, in the round and gas in particular. Totally. And if you're going to like phase it all out in 10 years, why am I going to build a 17 bazillion dollar plant? Um, all right, last quick question with like 20 seconds. When do you think we're going to know if the flows have happened and restarted in some extent on Nord Stream 1? I think uh, quite early tomorrow morning, we'll probably okay. see signs that they have started. Um, but whether he keeps them going or he just turns up and down the dial, that's going to be interesting. Really looking forward to it. Um, it's going to be a game and ship theory there. Will, thanks a lot. Uh, Bloomberg Managing Editor uh, for Energy and Commodities. Uh, all right, uh, coming up, we are going to talk about the housing market here in the U.S. I'm trying to sell an apartment. It's really stressful. We're going to talk about that a little bit. You're listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele here in New York, just past 5.30, where you guys are. 30 minutes to go till we get the confidence vote uh, from Mario Draghi over in Italy. Let's get you a quick check in here on the markets. A U.S. stock seeing a nice rally today. Netflix helping after... The idea that it could have been worse yesterday after the bell, that's helping to propel the Nasdaq 100 higher, along with Amazon. Uh, got an upgrade from Jefferies on the flip side. Uh, you got Apple seeing analysts trim their price targets there um, on FX value, uh, FX issues for the quarter, uh, et cetera. So definitely watching that space. Um, but we also bounced off the 50-day moving average for the S&P yesterday, and it was a broad-based rally yesterday. So we seem to have a little bit more optimism within the stock market, very different than what we're seeing for the likes over in Europe. So that's a quick check-in here on the markets in the U.S. Now let's get your top stories with Charlie Pellet. I thank you very much, Alex Steele. Boris Johnson signed off his final appearance as Prime Minister in the U.K.'s House of Commons by offering advice to his successor and declaring his mission is largely accomplished. 
Johnson said, stay close to the Americans, stick up for the Ukrainians, cut taxes, deregulate where possible, and, quote, focus on the road ahead, but always remember to check the rearview mirror. Russian President Vladimir Putin has signaled that Europe will start getting gas again through a key pipeline, but warned that unless a spat over sanctioned parts is resolved, flows will be tightly curbed. Europe is waiting to see whether gas flows resume tomorrow when maintenance on the Nord Stream pipeline is set to end. The European Union has proposed that the bloc cut its natural gas consumption by 15 percent over the next eight months in a plan that would affect all households, power producers and industry. And EasyJet says shareholders have voted in favor of an order for an additional 56 Airbus A320neo series jets as the carrier looks to secure a supply of planes through the end of the decade. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right, Charlie, thank you so much. Really appreciate your channeling guy there uh, with the front row order. I appreciate <laughs> that. He appreciates that from vacation on the beach. Um, so, Kriti, we got some economic news today. Uh, housing starts. Mm-hmm. Existing home sales, actually, I should say. First, you got mortgage applications down over 6%. Existing home sales down 5.4%. I guess I'm trying to understand a couple of things. One, what kind of housing slowdown is the Fed going to be happy with? And kind of two, have we really seen the immediate ref- uh, effect of these higher 30-year mortgage rates? Because presumably, best case scenario, it can take you three months to close if you have a 30-year fix. So I'm just wondering like, where we are in all of that. Well, I think one of the biggest issues in the housing market right now, it, it comes down to demographics. And this is something that I'm paying an extra attention to because so many of my friends personally, well, they've put down you know, deposits and mortgage payments for apartments and houses. And I'm kind of like, well, I'm still paying for a studio in New York City. So uh, I'm not thrilled sure. about it. But they absolutely are. And I think that key demographic that's been so to some extent, piling into the housing market for so long, that affordability is what is set to be lost here. And I think that's going to be a key part of the question for the Federal Reserve, is that it's not about how many home sales you're losing or construction mm-hmm. starts or something. It's about at what point does the demographic change and say, OK, well, housing isn't even attractive anymore. Right, right. Especially because, in theory, that's how you build a lot of wealth. So if you can't afford that Eight hundred thousand dollar place, you have to go down to four hundred thousand because mortgage rates are so high. That that definitely affects them what you sell it for later and how yeah. you accumulate that longer term wealth. Um, so on TV, uh, Anna Edwards and I spoke with Howard Lorber. He's Douglas Elliman Realty Chairman, and yes, they deal much more with luxury. Um, but here's what he had to say about rates and affordability. Well, I, I think you know if you think about it, whenever they talk about rates, like uh, recently in the fives, those are pretty much thirty year. You know mortgages, conforming mortgages, which are on smaller numbers. But if you, uh, you could still get adjustables in the threes um, if you have banking relationships. And then, of course, the wealthy, it's pretty simple. Either they, they can pay cash, if they don't want to sell anything from their portfolio because their stocks are down, they just go to their uh, to their bank or their brokerage company and they can borrow against their uh, their collateral for 150 basis points. So I don't, you know, it depends. It depends what part of the market you're speaking okay. about. Um, but thinking about mortgage applications, so away from the more luxury end of things, Howard, I suppose. Right. Uh, thinking about mortgage applications, we saw that data showing a drop to the lowest level since early 2000. Yeah. I mean, I guess the Fed would like that to be, to some extent, to do with higher rates because they're, they're trying to to slow things down a bit. Yeah, it, it's definitely uh, it just has something to do with it. It has a lot to do with it, but but. That's on the lower end of the market, um, not on the middle and the, uh, the luxury end, uh, which we basically 
do most of our business on the luxury end. Uh, but we do watch what's happening. It is the lowest uh, mortgage application, I think, in 21 years, 20, 21 years. So we obviously see that it's happening. And the question then is really, who is it happening to? And uh, I would say that it's happening to the people that are buying at the lower end, what we consider the lower end of the market. Let's go to luxury then for a second, Howard. Um, uh, traditionally, particularly here in New York, overseas buyers, foreign buyers would come in and snap up uh, New York City real estate, for example. But now the dollar is super high, and that seems to be a trend that could be a softening. What are you noticing? Yeah, no, we see, we see that. We're sort of disappointed because we assume that with COVID under control, we hope that we were going to see all these foreigners come into the market and start buying houses. Uh, and it hasn't happened. And it hasn't happened just because of what you said. With the dollar uh, so strong, it's not going to happen. And so if it continues to be strong, I think we're going to have to wait until uh, things straighten out in the world and the dollar goes back to someplace near where it was before. Uh, this is not good at this time for uh, foreign buyers to come into the markets here. It is good for Amer American buyers, dollar buyers, to go into the foreign markets. I feel like that. Sorry, that was how Howard Lober, a Douglas Elliman Realty chairman, got to update you on who that was. Um, I feel like the stronger dollar is going to be an increasing theme that we're going to hit, and we'll talk about this later on in terms of euro dollar, what to expect from the ECB. But if we don't find a real, real cap for the dollar, this multinational problems, big, big cap tech companies, real estate. There are a lot of areas where that's going to hurt the U.S. economy. A lot of areas. And I think um, there's a great statistic from Bloomberg Intelligence that over a third of S&P 500 profits, well, they come from abroad. So that's Eeks. ultimately hurting a lot of multinational companies. Um, and, and I think it's also interesting when we talk about purchasing power here, because it's not just about purchasing power for the dollar. A lot of people who are trying to purchase commodities, mm -hmm. food, copper, whatever it is you might need, that is all priced in dollars. So the cost of living crisis that I think we're seeing um, in the United States and in the West, we talk about in the UK, for example, a lot. Well, imagine it for the emerging markets who also have that same issue. Kristalina Gorgeva, for example, of the IMF, in spring meetings, she warned about this. She said a sovereign debt crisis in the EM world might be really tricky and might be on the cusp here. And a lot of that could be related to the dollar strength. Yeah. And, sp and staying on that point, I mentioned the Apple downgrade earlier. Um, Wells Fargo, for example, Apple cut its price forecast on Apple by about 10%, um, saying you got a, a macroeconomic environment that's challenging, but also you got a stronger dollar uh, as well. That it's not just about the macro environment that you have this dollar that's going to be hurting. Microsoft also is front and center with that. Um, what was the other company? Tech company? I'm going to also throw in really quickly. IBM. IBM, mm -hmm. right. Yep, yep. Um, Goldman mentioned the same thing about Apple as well. They really warned against the dollar, which I mm -hmm. think is crucial. And at this point, it's even higher than the last quarter. So, like, we might not have felt the peak impact uh, of the strong dollar on some of these companies' earnings. Um, and it's going to be hard to make a case. What kind of case do you have to make to get the peak in the dollar? Yeah, I also have to say the consensus trade in FX right now is that the dollar strength isn't going anywhere. It's just going up and up and up. And the only perhaps um, spot of relaxation you might get is maybe with the ECB if they right. come through with this 50 basis point hike. Sure, you can make the argument that we're really long dollars, so therefore right. there's a counterintuitive trade right. there potentially that we're kind of over positioned, oversold. Uh, we'll get to that. Vince Signorella will come up in a couple minutes on this. All right, coming up right now, we're going to talk about Netflix and the broader tech sector with Michael Pachter. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
Good evening. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. Netflix lost almost 1 million subscribers in the second quarter, but the stock is up. It could have been worse. That's basically what Reed Hastings, the CEO, said. It could have been worse. So what does that actually mean for the stock? How do you value something that could have been worse when its competitors are growing quite fast? Uh, Michael Pachter is well-known in the tech industry, managing director and equity research analyst at Wedbush Securities. And um, myself and Anna Edwards spoke to him earlier about uh, the Netflix numbers. Let's just look at the U.S. and Canada. They lost 1.3 million subscribers, and that's fewer than 2% of their total subscribers. They raised price by 10%. You know, so if you kind of work through price elasticity of demand, that's pretty good. Um, I don't think Netflix is is yet ready to accept that they're in a slow growth, high profit mode, and they they talked a lot about that on the on the earnings call and in the letter. Uh, but they are certainly managing the slow growth. They're cutting their costs. They're kind of pulling back on content spend, and they're going to generate a lot more cash. So that's really the reason I think investors are excited. Netflix is holding out hope that they'll return to hyper growth one of these days, and they'll be positioned for that. But in the meantime, they're going to throw off a lot of cash, and that's good. And. And the co- good to speak to you, Michael. And the company didn't seem keen to, to think about increasing prices as perhaps one of the reasons they were losing subscribers, given the numbers you've just given us. Maybe you share their view. Yeah, they, they uh, you know, I have to say they're, they're somewhat delusional when they talk to investors and they drink their own Kool-Aid. Um, they, they do a lot of things that, that really don't make a whole lot of sense. For example, dumping all their episodes at once. And Reed brought it out on the earnings call. We're committed to binge watching. That's our winning formula. It's kind of odd that no other service does it that way. Nobody. Uh, Amazon just tested it with the terminal list. It's the first first show ever that they dumped all the episodes. So why doesn't Netflix emulate the success of firms like HBO, who have a tenth as much content and yet have much, much lower churn? So, you know, they don't do everything right, but Mm -hmm. the stuff they're doing right now is enough to make the stock go up. I think it also depends on how you're looking and valuing Netflix. And Michael Pactor talked about this uh, later on as well, that are you looking at a company that's going to prioritize profits over growth versus a company that's going to be growing 20 to 30 percent? He thinks they're going to be growing in the single digits versus that 20 and 30 percent, which changes how you value the company. He has a 280 price target uh, there on Netflix. But Kriti, a lot of analysts still have you know, 300 400 $500 price targets on a Netflix. They do. And I think what's interesting is that even with those price targets, they're not even actually taking into account their ad business because there's no roadmap for how they can Mm -hmm. monetize ads in the past because we've never had to do that for for Netflix in particular. So I think this is interesting. I think uh, Kaylee Lines also made a very important point this morning on surveillance that if you look at the the geographic distribution of the subscribers, the United States is losing, Mm -hmm. Europe is losing, but it's those EM markets, Latin America, India, for example, that's where most of the, most of their growth is coming from, which is interesting when you think about Netflix as a super weight uh, tech stock. Right, and and also they don't make as much money there. They make more money, say in the right. U.S., where where they're losing um, subscribers. But funny thing about ads that you mentioned. So um, my daughter has grown up without any TV. She only does. We, we cut the cord when she was really young, so she's only her only experience is like Netflix and Disney Plus yeah. and uh, Amazon Prime and all of that. And I think it was Amazon Prime that just started doing some commercials, and she literally was like, "What is that? <laughs> why am I not getting right to my show?" And I was like, "That is called a commercial." She's like, "Well, but why? Like, why? Why can't you just skip ahead through this? Like, wh- what's going on here? I don't want this. This is stupid." And so I wonder how the ads. It, it, it's going to be a whole different thing bringing that to a different generation. Well, it was already um, this. 
kind of new base that's almost it's the old model that's come back and that one episode gets dropped every week the kind mm-hmm. of way you had to watch you know like a telenovela or a soap opera and mm-hmm. one new episode every week on Tuesdays at 7pm or whatever and now HBO is adopting that model Disney's adopting that mm-hmm. model I'd argue Amazon is as well Netflix still hasn't done it the binge watching is still very much a the Netflix model and I, I think hate I hate the one episode thing. It drives you it, crazy. It, it is like not okay in my life anymore. <laughs> this is why I, I do appreciate and will be loyal to Netflix uh, on that front. A Netflix stock up by about 6% uh, on the day. All right, we've been teasing it like all hour. We're going to talk to Vince Signorella uh, about what is going to happen tomorrow with the ECB. How do you trade it? What does positioning look like? It is really, truly historic. It's hard to understate or overstate what tomorrow will bring for Europe. It's the first rate hike in over a decade from the ECB. Impact will be huge and we will break down. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. So set your clocks, everybody. We are counting down to the ECB tomorrow. It will be an historic day. How do you trade it? What do you do? Vincent Signorella, uh, Bloomberg Markets, uh, Bloomberg Bloomberg Global Macro Strategist. That's hard. Uh, he squawks all day on the Bloomberg. You can listen to him. You can talk to him. He knows all the traders and all the trades. Uh, he joins us now to help walk us through. Hey, Vince, there's so many ways to go about this. So I guess the yeah. first thing I want to understand is what's positioning and sentiment like when it comes to the euro, when it comes to the dollar? Because that's going to dictate so much of what we see tomorrow. Well, we last week had the euro traded parity, um, huge options positions uh, at that level. Um, I think caught the market a little bit short on the uptick, uh, trading above uh, back above 102. Um, but the market's very much positioned and thinking the ECB is going to actually do t- uh, 50 basis points, not 25. I'm not so sure I would fall into that camp. Um, it's it's unfortunately too late from a volatility standpoint to play. That would have been the ideal way to play it because either 25 or 50 would have seen a big move. But vol has been bid up since then, so I think it's a little little pricey to be paying up for volatility right now. But um, there's definitely there's there's definitely an options play on either side of this uh, in a one touch play because if they go 50, you'd expect the euro to trade back towards uh, one double O. Uh, if they go 25, uh, if they uh, sorry the other way around. <laughs> If they go 25, they go it trades 50. back. If it trades, right, exactly. Okay. <clears throat> and if they go, if they were to go uh, um, 25, we would we would definitely see a fade, and we see 105, perhaps if uh, they go 50. Um, but I but I think both of those options are um, are something to fade. I don't think they'll hold um, because once we're done with the ECB, then we have to tee up the FOMC. So Vince, bring into it the the politics of Mario Draghi at the moment. How much does that move the needle for the ECB, if at all? Well, it 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 does from a standpoint of its credibility standpoint. If they go twenty five, we could see a blowout in the spreads, and you most likely see it with uh, the ten year bonds and ten year Italian BTPs. Right now, it's about two point one three percent. If it if it's 25, you'd expect this to blow out and go higher. If it's 50, it'd remain stable and come back in again. But with all the drama of Draghi, I would think the asymmetric risk is that it still ends up uh, blowing out to the top side. And again, even if they were to go um, 50 in the euro, would gain. Um, given what's going on in Ukraine, given what's going on with the Italian government and the strain it could put on peripheral bonds, 
uh, I'm not a fan of the euro. And gas, and gas, and not forget the energy crisis too. And um, gas, of course. And, yes. and, and to that point um, on Italy, I just want to update everyone on this. The center-right League party uh, will be skipping the confidence vote uh, for Prime Minister Mario Draghi. And that, of course, then is raising the prospect that the coalition will collapse and that snap elections could happen as soon as the fall. And like the last worst case scenario that the ECB probably wanted to manage uh, going into tomorrow. Um, I understand you're not a fan of the euro. I just wonder, like, how short is the market right now? Are we, are we in the short levels that we saw back in 2015? Or is there still room to to, to add? I think there's still room to add because I think a lot of people uh, were not buying the dollar rally. Clearly, we saw that in earnings from large corporates. Um, having having marketed the large corporate space, the, these people, and I don't get it, uh, treasurers and CFOs of the multinational companies are so loath to hedge their exposure. They think the dollar is always going to weaken at some point, and they and they don't want to to hedge um, uh, a short dollar pos- or long dollar position because they think it's always going to come back their way. And we've seen it countless uh, companies, J and J. Trying to think of who else came out recently. Uh, IBM, um, Microsoft. All, we were just Microsoft, talking about this. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're, they're all crying the blues because they never hedged their positions. Um, and I pitched hedging positions to corporates, and it's amazing how often this is the philosophy you get, and it's sad. Um, whereas they'll look at you and say, "Well, if I save the company thirty million dollars, I won't get any credit for it. But if I lose the company some ten million dollars, I, I might get fired." And so they do nothing. And they let it go. And when they lose money, it, it, I guess there seems to be uh, no retribution. So w- why do it? And it's it's mm-hmm. a sad thing. It's not very good for shareholders. Simmons, it feels like there, I mean, the consensus trade in FX, I, I feel like for, for the long term here is that the dollar trade is is the one that still works, that is going to go stronger and stronger from here. There's no stopping it. But I'm curious, how do you actually hedge something like that? Well, at this point, there is a, an incredible... Um, Inverse correlation between um, the S and P cash and and the U.S. dollar. My personal feeling is that we're coming to the end of the, the dollar rally. I think uh, the economy is going to stall a little bit. I think the Fed is going to realize that they've gone too fast, that they made a big mistake with transient inflation, and they're, they're trying to correct the mistake. In my opinion, by making another mistake by rolling over too quickly. Um, once the Fed realizes the errors of their ways, and maybe I'm the only person who thinks this, um, and they pause, um, we'll see a very, very strong market rally going into the late third, fourth quarter of this year, and definitely a major sell-off to the dollar. What do you and think? Even though I'm not a big fan of the euro, it'll go up. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, also. Uh, update, guys. I just want to put it out there. So I mentioned that uh, the, the league won't be voting uh, for Mario Draghi in the vote for confidence. Also, uh, the Forza Italia party also uh, won't be voting in the confidence vote for Mario Draghi. So the center left continues uh, to back away. Um, center right, I should say, continues to back away. Um, OK, Vince, good stuff. Appreciate that. Real quick, how far do you think that the Fed's going to be able to go until it has to back off? Potentially, uh, well, we're expecting 75 basis points July. Potentially, they do 50 or 75 in September. I think that absolutely after September, they're done, uh, just my opinion. Uh, And I think there's a possibility they don't go in September at all. Really? Look at the housing data. Look at retail sales. Wow. What a contrarian That feels really, really grim. Vince, bumming me out. No, it's a good thing. 
Thank you. It's it's it's, it's great for earnings because the dollar will come down. Yeah. Large cap corporate earnings will go back up yeah. again, and the stock market will go higher. Uh, Vincent, always a pleasure. Love the counterintuitive take. It's been way too long. I love talking to you. Uh, say hi to your mom for me, by the way. Vincent Signorella joins us from uh, Bloomberg Audio Squawk. Akriti, thank you so much for joining me for the hour. I know you're very busy, and I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. This was fun. You bet. Um, so the, up, the latest headline there, the center-right uh, parties are backing away from that confidence vote from Mario Draghi. That vote up next. This is Bloomberg. <laughs> 